E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Patricio Tapia of Wine and Spirits Magazine and also the author of the Descorchados Wine Guide for South America. Very nice to have you here. Great. So you were born in Chile? Yeah, I was born in Santiago in 1968. Your family were into wine? or? Well, yes. My grandfather was a kind of a collector. So the first uh, memories that I have about wine, own wine, is that, you know, those cases uh, arriving at home. That was back in 1970 something, so, so pretty long ago. I can imagine that's a long time ago also for the Chilean wine scene. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, although, you know, in Chile, uh, we have a long history on, on, on wine uh, consumption and also production. The last, let's say, that 30 years were, were the most radical in terms of change and evolution, of course, you know. So back in those uh, days, in the 70s, the Chilean wine scene was just primitive in many senses. So people will talk about red or white, and that's it. And sweet, and that's it. On the market itself, it will be like, you know, not many labels available. And um, for example, the first time I published the Scorchados was in 1999. And um, I only tried like 500 samples. Now it's more than 2,000. Originally, just something you kind of did out of your kitchen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that, that's the idea that came out. Because at that time, it was another uh, wine guide uh, made by winemakers, uh, and it was a long, big group of, uh, of people trying to be objective about wine. And in my opinion, that's impossible. So I wanted to just give another, another point of view. So in the late 90s, that happened. In the early 90s, you started writing for El Mercurio. Yeah, El Mercurio is, a, is, a, is an old, one of the oldest newspapers in, in South America. And uh, it's very important in, in Chile. And um, I studied journalism. That was, that's, that's my, my main uh, career. And then I, I was um, moving to live alone. I was 20-something. And uh, I got this uh, possibility to work in El Mercurio, writing about bars, uh, about, you know, the things to do by night, basically. Good time to do it in your life when you're Yeah, 20. that was the perfect job. The perfect job, of course. Uh, so I, um, 
I have a pretty intense nightlife, of course, because my job was, the, you know, demanded that. <laughs> gotta and, do the homework. Uh, exactly, you gotta do the homework, exactly. And then one day, in the, probably in the early 90s, like 95, probably, something like that, the guy who was writing the, the wine column for the Mercurio decided to go other place, and, and, and the editor said, well, would you like to do it? And I went like, yeah, I need the money, of course. Love to, I have no idea about wine. But yeah, of course, why not? And that was the beginning. And I feel like you kind of took it to a very professional level very quickly because it wasn't that long after that that you went to Bordeaux for a diploma yeah. program. I realized uh, as a journalist, you know, you, you need to uh, have good sources and uh, they need to take you seriously. Like in more in a horizontal, you know, relation than a vertical relation, you know. You kind of see the guys, you know, at the same level or at least a similar level. Uh, it wasn't easy. There was a lot of things involved, as you know, in wine and um, things that I never learned before, uh, like winemaking, you know, what is that? First of all, I, I, I kind of like the idea of writing that wine column. I kind of like the people who were involved in the wine business, so I felt well. And um, so then I, uh, I realized that I need to learn, I need to learn more. I uh, did some research, no internet, not Google at that time, so I just asked. And um, they said that the DUAD, which is a diploma in winemaking and tasting in Bordeaux, is, was the best uh, for me. I write them a letter explaining that I was you know, a Chilean journalist. Nobody really was writing about Chilean wine. I, I, and I went like, oh, that could be important for you know, the Chilean industry, blah, blah, blah. And they said, yes, come, pay, of course, and, and come. <laughs> so that was 97. And I feel like uh, there was a lot of French influence later in, like, Michel Roland in Argentina and, you know, in South America, that you were right. <laughs> yeah, and in, in Chile and in South America in general, Bordeaux is a big, big influence, especially in Chile. Many winemakers, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon is the main grape in Chile. Carmenet is also Bordeaux grape. And um, Sauvignon Blanc, Semillon, Semillon, it's, it's a, now it's getting more and more important, but back in the 50s, or in the 40s even, uh, Semillon was the most important white grape in Chile before all these Sauvignon Chardonnays arrived. No? The Bordeaux influences have been radically important in Chile and in Argentina. There's a way that Chile and Argentina could be a little um, separated from the rest of the currents. It's kind of off to, its, off to one side, literally. And uh, it's interesting that there was such a, a conversation with the wines of France, and I guess that's because they were some of the most esteemed in the world. But I wonder if there's any other historical reason, like migration or something that really affected Chile's relationship with Bordeaux wines and Bordeaux grape varietals? There is a specific reason. You know, the difference between Uruguay, Argentina, and Chile in wine terms are huge, huge. The influence of Bordeaux is basically because of, in the mid-19th century, you know, this, you know, these rich people from mining, you know, decide that they should they should, you know, see Europe. They spent long, you know, long time in, in, in France or in Italy, or but mainly in France. In France, France was like the Miami of our times. <laughs> so everybody wanted, to, every rich guy, you know, that could afford that, wanted to go there and spend, you know, a year there. So uh, in those days, they, uh, they, when they came back, they, somehow they, they want to replicate what they saw there. So then, because they have the money, 
they build these beautiful, you know, chateaus and uh, surrounded by vineyards. And that's orig the origin of many wineries in Chile, many important wineries in Chile. Cousinho Macul, for example, is a good example of that. So um, that was the beginning. And that influence, you know, is still really predominant in Chile. Uh, there are some technical uh, reasons too. Bordeaux has these alluvial soils that are similar with the alluvial soils in Maipo. That's the most important region for Cabernet Sauvignon in Chile. So there is that too. But mainly, I will say, this idea of copy, you know, the high culture of France. You know. uh, that's Chile. In Argentina and in, in Uruguay, this thing's a little different. Around the same time, there was this, uh, this big migration from Italy, from Spain, and in, um, in Uruguay, from France, but not from Bordeaux, from other regions, you know. And um, in Argentina, you have this deep culture of, the, of immigration, you know, this poor guy from Italy or from France that has nothing to eat, and was escaping from misery in Europe, and came to this new world, you know, trying to uh, start a new life. And obviously, wine, olive oil, bread was part of his culture. So that's the origin of Argentinian wines. You know, that the immigration, the culture, the culture of this of these you know people arriving in, in Argentina, and the same thing in Uruguay. So the difference between both cultures are you know pretty evident. Looking at it as I do from the Italian perspective, there's real evidence of that. Because, like, Giacomo Canterno was born in Argentina, for example. You know, I tell you this because to fully understand the difference between Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay, you, sh you should start knowing that, you know. So you did a French tour of your own. As a Chilean, you went to Bordeaux, and then you often visited neighboring wine regions while you're in Europe, because that makes sense, because you're there already. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I I started with Bordeaux, of course, because it was just half an hour from my from my home. Then I, I also was uh, lucky enough to get a job in an English uh, magazine, drinks magazine. They hired me because I was there. It's, that, that was a small magazine that not even exists. But I was a wine writer, so I, I could you know knock some doors, some important doors, luckily. So I, I uh, with that uh, credential, <laughs> I went to Burgundy and uh, and I had the chance to, to taste beautiful wines. That was my first uh, great wine experience. And I also went to Germany, went to Italy. I spent time and money trying to learn more. You know, you know that you know Levi that energy that you have when you're young. And when you discover something that you really like, so you want to know everything, you want to know all. So that, that was the energy that I have during those years. <laughs> I still have some, not that much, but yes. You still do the nightlife column? <laughs> no way. No, that's impossible. It's impossible. No, no. That's the change. That's yeah, the that's, a, that's a big change. I'm too old for that. Too old for that. But uh, I feel like you also made some friends while you're in France as well. Some people in the winemaking and chateau owners. I still have some really good friends from that, that time, and um, many of them are dead, actually. Uh, Paul Pontalier, for example, was a, one of the... Because Paul Pontalier worked in Chile, you know, and he still has the... Well, his family has the this partnership in Maipo with the Vignac Itanias called the, the Venture, with Bruno Prats and uh, all, all other people. This guy opened for me the doors of Margot, you know, and, and gave me incredible wines. And just because I was Chilean, and he likes Chile, so that's that, the main reason. And also Jean-Paul Ballet, was, he passed away in 2000, he was married with a Chilean 
woman so uh, i contacted him and um, he and he was uh, he was a good friend he was a very good friend but also a big influence in my in my wine life at that time how so to me i consider chateau pavi the lopez de heredia of santa emilion it was it was so i when i met him he, he we have this beautiful long conversation about tradition about terroir about the the influence of you know people in wine wine making, and I was really the first great Saint Emilions that I tried. The first, actually, the first great Bordeaux that I tried were made at Chateau Pavie, and I and I still have the you know that that in my mind I still have this you know this beautiful, elegant, refined uh, style. Well, I, um, one year after we became friends, his family decided to sell the Chateau Pavie to Gerard Pers, which is a, is a businessman. He owns a um, supermarket and stuff like that. And he's buying, you know, several chateaus in, in France, and especially in Bordeaux. Well, so, and he hired uh, Michel Hollande. And everything changed immediately, immediately. I mean, he, he destroyed, uh, literally he destroyed the cave, uh, the cellar, sorry, the cellar. Uh, and um, because he, he, he said that he was dirty or I don't know what. I was I was there when two uh, main point of view of wine clash collapse. You know, I didn't realize how important it was at that time, but now that I that I think about it, it was you know radically important in my own you know understanding of wine. This new modern for that time I'm talking about eighty nine, new modern vision of new oak extraction, masculine uh, wines confronting uh, Jean-Paul's view of, you know, more elegant, putting your ego aside and let the terroir express itself through a bottle of wine. Of course, it was more more with uh, Jean-Paul on that vision, but it was really interesting to see those big forces, you know, uh, um, fighting. And at the same time was this, uh, well, two years later, actually, I think the 2000 vintage was the first that uh, Roland made. And there was this beautiful controversy between uh, Jensis Robinson and Robert Parker. One gave it like really low score, Jensis to this monumental monster-like wine. And Parker gave it like, I don't know, 155 points, I don't know. <laughs> so it was interesting to see that. And then when I saw that, I realized that I, I was there. You know, I was there. It's like, you know, it's like Lopez Teredia changing everything and buying new, new oak. Can you imagine that? It's just nonsense. And a point that you've made to me in the past, which I felt really resonated when you said it, was that that's a narrative that you saw happen in South America over and over again subsequently, where tradition met modern business and tradition went away. Yeah, exactly. That, that's why probably it, it was so important for me in those early years, you know, to understand that it was this uh, dramatic conflict between, you know, these two visions. I was lucky enough to to be part of a TV show in South America, and we uh, we visit many many wineries around the world, and I saw that many times. You know, I, I for example, we once we were in Barolo, we have this incredible luck to interview Bartolo Mascarello months before he passed away, and at the same time we interview Elio Altare, and we have these two uh, interviews, uh, one one talking really nasty things about the other and vice versa. So again, these two forces, you know, uh, fighting to prevail. 
Another beautiful one is Mario Sergio Nuno, the traditional producer in Bairada, Baga producer, and Luis Pato. We try to do the same thing. Try, we try to confront them, try to <laughs> say things uh, uh, that can be, you know, as dramatic as the Barolo story. But no, they decide to get together, have dinner together, and laugh together. <laughs> Although, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Luis Pato and, uh, and, uh, and Mario Sergio's Quinta de las Vagueiras in, in Bairada. Those ones can be more uh, different. I mean, it's impossible. Uh, and uh, until they, they can sit around the table and laugh and get drunk. I thought it was interesting how you made reference to Bayrata when you were talking about Tanat in Argentina in your wine guide, because I, I don't feel like everyone writing a wine guide about South America would be readily making comparisons to minuscule old world wine regions. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of where you're coming from, though. Exactly. And, it's, you know, the, the Tanat is a, is a beautiful grape, but as Baga are, as in any, any, any grape, in any great grape, in any great region in the world, is really specific about sight. And in Barada, for example, you need those, those chalky clay soils near the coast. In Tanat, in Uruguay, you really need those same kind of, you know, soils. Otherwise, I mean, if you put Tanat on sand, it's like the worst experience for your mouth ever, you know. The same thing with uh, Baga. Uh, although, you know, Luis Pato makes some really good uh, bagas, old vines, baga in sun, the best baga wines came from these, you know, rolling hills near the coast uh, in, in that area in Portugal. And uh, in, in Uruguay, there is this incredible, beautiful place called Las Violetas, old vines, again, in chalky, clayly soils that, you know, produce this incredible, you know, fantastic, austere, shy, timid kind of stuff, but with a big, super solid structure. And so you ended up returning to Chile and writing this wine guide. And you started in the late 90s with the wine guide, which I feel like that was really when a lot of consulting money came through, when a lot of big projects were done in a more modern style. That's when, you know, certain countries in South America looked at exports as like something they could really conquer and really entered the scene, the world wine market in a big way. So in between then and now, what did you start to see happening that were kind of dominant conversations? Well, as a new region, South America, you know, always offer good stories for journalists, for writers. And you're right, at that time was critical in, in Chile and Argentina, because they, especially in, in, in Chile. Argentina start, started a little later, but in Chile, 98, 99 were critical years when they start showing their potential to the world, and specifically to the United States. The States and Great Britain are the main market for Chilean wines, for South American wines in general. So at that time, they were showing how good can they be, you know. And from those days, I remember tasting the first really great Sauvignon Blancs from Casablanca. The cool climate region was the news at that time, you know. And you have this beautiful Chardonnay's uh, Sauvignon Blancs from, from the coast of, of Santiago in Casablanca Valley, in the central part of Chile. And then this um, uh, classic Cabernet Sauvignons from Maipo, from Alto Maipo, up in the mountains, uh, up in the Andes. So you have these two beautiful examples of, of the potential of, of Chilean wines. Those two wines were my first, first lesson in the first uh, Descorchados in 1999. Uh, and... 
And so I, I was really impressed that how they were showing, you know, the terroir or, the, or a new terroir in the case of Casablanca and this old tradition in the case of Maipo. Well, and, and Argentina started a little later, probably towards 2005, they, you know, they, they, they appear in the market. And with the Malbec, that's already an old story. But that, at that time, you know, I was really impressed how nice uh, approachable can be Malbec. If Tanat is the shy guy who is, you know, in the corner, uh, in silence, in a party, you know, Malbec is the guy who takes the mic and starts singing, you know. It's like, that's, that will be the, the, the difference between these two grapes. And uh, did it, I didn't, uh, I didn't was, I wasn't surprised about the success of Malbec, especially in this country, you know. Um, it was logic for me, you know, such a adorable, you know, easy to understand grape made an impact in this market. So... Those were the news, but now there, there nowadays there, a lot of things are happening. Just in, at the top of my head, you know, for example, Itata in Chile, which is a very, very old uh, area, winemaking region in Chile, um, you know, with 500, 600 years old tradition. Now it's, it's been recovering for the modern wine, and you can get really incredible wines from Muscat, made in the orange way, you know, <laughs> or the Sanso, for example, a beautiful grape. And also the Pais, which was the, the grape that, you know, the Spanish brought to the country 500 years ago, 600 years ago. So you have this uh, new, very old area that, that is emerging right now in Chile, totally different, as the landscape is. You know, if you compare Maipo with Itata, they're just different words. It's totally different. In Argentina, I'm totally into this new uh, idea of Malbec as a, as a great interpretation of terroir. They, they are really into these high-altitude wines, so you can really see how um, Malbec reacts when, when it goes to the, up in the mountains, to Bungato, Hualtajari, well, the, all the Uco Valley towards the mountains, and also when, the, when Malbec it, it grows in, near the river, and, and, and so you can get all these new flavors that in the past were totally, you know, behind the extraction, the oak, and the ego of the people who were making it. Now now things are changing, and there is this beautiful new generation of Malbec coming to this market. And I was really impressed by how much your book highlighted that, because I think in my mind, coming from uh, someone who mostly follows European wines and domestic wines, for me, I guess I often follow that stereotype that, oh, you know, these wines from South America are some, like you described from the earlier era, big, bold reds, sometimes with very soft tannins, either for quite a bit of money or very inexpensive, kind of at both poles, kind of like a Western Hemisphere version of Australia. But what you really highlighted in your book, in the Wine Guide Desarchados, is terroir differences, you have different sections on different valleys, and you highlighted numerous producers who are looking at different terroir expressions in different parts of Chile and Argentina, different places that we may not be thinking about outside of some of the main corridors, like outside of Mendoza, for example, there are other areas. And you also looked at people who are making wine with different grapes than we'd think of, not just the either Cab or Malbec axis, but looking at things like Pais that maybe have a historical resonance, looking at winemaking production that isn't associated with Bordeaux in the 90s, you know, that maybe is more historical, maybe a little more rough around the edges. 
So I was surprised to hear about a lot of that. And I wonder if you could kind of take me through geographically, if there are terroir wines coming out of these countries, maybe we could start with Chile and you can just kind of lay out for me what the expanse of Chile is when it comes to wine. Starting from north to south, I will start with Limari and Elqui. That's the Pisco area. But since the last 20 years, they also produce uh, wine, table wine. Again, there's this river uh, and these chalky soils and the influence of the ocean. So it seems to be a desert, but it's actually some of the, of the most in- interesting areas are influenced by the cold breezes from the, from the Pacific. So it's actually kind of cool climate. And there, to my surprise, I taste some really incredible Chardonnays. As you know, you know, Chardonnay is, is difficult if it's not coming from really specific areas in the world. But I was really surprised about how salty those wines were. And I, um, some Descorchados ago, I put them on the, on the spot because I, I thought it would be interesting for readers to try those new Chardonnays. And some, some good Pinot Noir, too. Well, when you move uh, to the south, you will find uh, Aconcagua, uh, Casablanca. And again, in Chile, the influence of the coast is radically important, also the influence of, of the mountains. So in Aconcagua, now there is this new, newly planted area near the coast where you know there's a nice expression of Pinot Noir in a schist which is totally where in Chile, they discover a spot. And the, on the wines, uh, I don't know if, if we have any, any good example of Pinot Noir growing in schist. Probably in the Rheingau, right? There is this, this guy, I, I just don't remember his name. Kessler or something. Kessler, Kessler, yeah, exactly. August Kessler, exactly. He's a, he's a, good, he's a really great producer uh, when, when you talk about Pinot Noir on schist. Well, this guy, Erasuris, this, this, Erasuris is a big winery uh, with a really bright uh, winemaker, Francisco Betig, uh, he's making a, this beautiful Pinot Noir on schist that, uh, that totally blew my mind. And then when Casablanca, Casablanca is the original cool climate uh, region, and there there's this uh, new tradition, Sauvignon Blanc, you got some good Pinot Noirs. Uh, but uh, you got to move to the coast. Casablanca goes from uh, the mountains to the coast. So obviously, you know, the regions closer to the Pacific are more interesting in terms of climate, but also in terms of soils. There is this granitic soils that are really you know, good for Sauvignon Blanc in granite. I, I love that. And also some good Pinot Noir. You know Monsecano. Monsecano is a really nice producer from Casablanca, from the, the coolest part of Casablanca. And he's making um, really good wines. André Ostertag is involved in that project. You know André Ostertag, the, the producer in, from Alsace? He's involved in that project, and you should try it. It's really nice, nice Pinot Noir. I mean, it changed your mind about... It, it will change your prejudice uh, on, you know, Pinot Noir from, uh, from Chile. A really interesting wine to taste. And then well, there is Maipo. This is the classic region uh, in the surrounding of Santiago. And there is uh, the Cabernet Sauvignon is king and Cabernet Sauvignon on alluvial soils in the both sides of the Maipo River, especially towards the Andes. That's our own Medoc. <laughs> and then when you go south, there is this Maule area Again, with a long tradition, uh, granitic soils and uh, and Carignan. Carignan, it just we we just discovered Carignan like ten years ago. Before that, it was just another obscure grape for bulk wine. There's even a, an organization, a group of, of producers trying to give Carignan the dignity that it deserves. 
there's a beautiful discussion with, uh, about how Chilean Carignan should be, you know. It should be more like priorat, like more, more concentrated, more powerful, or it should be more like southern France Carignan, lighter, more easy to drink, more Van de Soif kind of kind of wine. So uh, there, there is a lot of Carignan. And then and then, uh, and then south of, of Mauro, there is Itata, Biovio, and all the southern region. The other day I was there, actually I was there last week, and uh, and I, I visited a producer and, and asked him, uh, "How you know how old is this vineyard?" He went like, "I don't know, two hundred. That's how how deep and, and 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 strong is the wine culture there. And there you get Sanso, you get Pais, and this Muscat, and this really strong Muscat. It's, it's interesting because Sanso is light, it's a red, but with a, with the logic of a white. It's light and beautiful to drink by the pool." And Muscat is made with the skin contact, it's strong, you know, tannic, like a red. Really interesting. That's Itata, Bio Bio, uh, beautiful país. Pipeños are made there. Pipeño, uh, I don't know if you, need, if you know about that. Pipeño is the, it's our own Beaujolais, you know. It's the wine made by an early consumption. Light red, can be white too. And uh, Pipeño is, is, the, is the wine that most represent the Chilean wine culture. You know, it's the original wine, if you want to call it like something like that. And what about the earthquakes that have happened recently? Did those hit certain zones in particular? And what was the aftermath of that? The earthquake from 2010 and the wildfires, like a month ago, they, uh, they affect a lot, especially in Maule and, uh, and Bio Bio, so the southern region. You know, I had the chance to visit the, the, the region right after the the, the earthquake and it, it was like a war zone. It was a, it was a very, very big one, you know. We're used to that, and we we have with several important ones in our history, in our rest, recent history, but that one affected the region, particularly Maule and and Itata Biobio. It was a disaster. It was a big disaster, and then I don't know how many millions of liters of wine, you know, just ran away. O ten was actually was a really great vintage. But with that uh, black spot, and then the wildfires uh, a, a month ago, I was there last week, as I said, and uh, it's I I don't know how to describe the landscape after a fire. It's just so violent. I mean, the fire is so violent when attack an area, and um, it was it was it was out of you know any knowledge. I mean, it, it, I, I, um, I get into um, a region in, in Maule, and I, I went to visit this winery, this old, old, old vineyard winery, and on the road to get there, the landscape was just, you know, hell, literally. Have you seen wineries have to close or restructure because of those natural events? Not the big ones, of course, but many small producers. The wildfires and the earthquake attack specifically, you know, especially those small growers, those small país growers, those small Carignan producers and growers. The, the most affected ones were the, um, those, producers, those small producers. Because I think of Chile as big producers and small producers that probably I don't see too much here, but I imagine that they're there. Yes, the, one of the differences between Chile and Argentina is that um, there in Argentina, because of this, you know, migration, the idea of making your own wine is something totally natural. While in Chile, is I know it's, it's true, it's more industrial. So when you think about making wines, you think about millions of bottles. You never think about five hundred or one thousand bottles. 
when you study wine making in, in Chile, they will teach you how to make big quantities of wines. I mean, anyone can make wine, but you need to study to make huge quantities of wine. But now in Chile, uh, thanks, thanks to these new areas, new regions, these old, actually, regions, now we have a, a new movement of small growers. And also in Chile, uh, more than in Argentina, you know, these big companies uh, don't allow to the winemaker to have a side project. But that's changing. Thanks God, that's changing. That's why now, or in the near future, you will see more of these, you know, small artisanal products coming, coming to, the, to the market. With a wine culture like that, I could really see how corporate decisions become complete landscape and culture decisions. Because if someone says, okay, we are a large producer, we've decided that Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay or Carignan or Cabernet is going to be a big deal. Uh, so we're going to plant a thousand acres of it and they have the resources to do that. And then all of a sudden that becomes a major market segment. You know, that's, there are a lot of bottles as a result and it can kind of change on a dime like that. And it might change a few times because people might change their mind and be like, no, nah, it's not working out. We're ripping it all up. We're grafting it over. We're going to try something else. You know, it was too hot. It was too cold. We didn't like it. Didn't sell. So following that kind of market is a, I feel like a very different thing than following something where there's uh, Appalachian controls, there's a long history, maybe there's a less large producer influence. One of the things that I think uh, is more important to change in Argentina and in Chile, and at some extent also in Uruguay, is that, I mean, I totally understand that you need to get some money out of this, because this is a business, you need to live, and you need to pay your rent, you need to pay your people, Perfect. I'm, I'm not against that. And if you're in that business, it's okay with me. But if you sell the idea of terroir, and if you sell the idea of wines with character, um, you can just know, see the market. I mean, you just do what you need to do. And uh, producing your wines, making your wines, looking at the land instead of, of the, what's going on with the last trend in New York, you know. And try to copy that, and that 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 was a big fight that I, I have with with many many producers that are trying to sell you something that you want to buy, or you're smart enough to not to buy it. And um, when all this terroir idea of uh, you know all this terroir marketing tool started to appear in Chile and in Argentina, you will find a lot of of that stuff. You know, people will tell you, oh, you look, this Malbec is you know is originally from here, and you can smell it, and you went like. Come on. I mean, that, that's what the Americans want. What do you think the American would like to, to drink? So that, that's a problem. That still is a problem. But uh, I don't blame the big companies to that because you know, it's their business and they need to sell bottles. But I, I, I really encourage small producers to do the opposite because they, 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 they need to do what they need to do. And that's it. And um, all these new guys producing, uh, I don't know, 5,000 bottles, 10,000 bottles, are trying to do what tradition tells them to do or something totally new, something uh, that they believe is the right thing to do. So it's, that's why, for example, uh, there are all this um, idea of Pipeño, País, all this idea of, you know, making wines in amphora because not because it's fashion in the, in the geeky community, but, but because the, the, that was the way we used to do wine, you know. 
So, um, yeah, there is a lot of that. There is a lot of people who's trying to conquer the market. And one day they will plant Syrah because Syrah was, was hot in 10 years ago. But now they realize that nobody's selling any bottle of Syrah anymore in this market. And now they're, they're asking what's hot so they can plant it back in Chile and do something about it. You mentioned Lopez de Heredia before. Are there producers like that that are just kind of a more exportable quantity of bottles kind of doing their thing over a long period of time in Chile? Are there names that I should be thinking about? Cousinho Macul is one of them. They have this long tradition of making elegant, you know, subtle wines a la Lopez de Heredia, similar to that, but not really. Um, now they have been changing a little bit the style. But still, they're the most traditional ones in Chile. I can think of Lopez in Argentina. Lopez is, is like the Lopez de Heredia of Argentina. Lopez is a big, huge winery in Argentina. They located in Maipú, which is an area within Mendoza. And they believe that the wine should stay longer in cask because you need to have the wine at your table when it's ready. And sometimes it's ready after 15 years. Sometimes it's ready after 20 years. So in, in, if you taste a Lopez wine from Argentina, you will have the chance to taste really old Malbec. Because they think that's the right thing to do. They don't give a shit about, you know, what's hot in the Brazilian market or in the American market. They just do what they need to do. So for the Chilean wine scene, as you've covered it since the late 90s, who have been the key figures in Chile, whether that be producers or sommeliers, restaurant owners, critics like yourself, who are people who have really shaped the current scene of Chile? There's the older generation of winemakers that uh, started to change, like uh, Ignacio Recabarro, for example, in Conchitoro, Pablo Morandé in, in Morandé, uh, Aurelio Montes in Montes Winery, uh, several others, Cecilia Torres in Santa Rita. So this old guard that started to sell wine abroad and they started to make a uh, commercial wines, wines that people in another country will understand. So that, that's the first step. And then there's, there's another generation of winemakers that started to you know, see their job not just as a um, lab rat. You know? They started to see their profession also as a PR thing. You know? So they were the, the guys in charge of producing and selling the wine. And so the, this later generation, people who now has 50 years old, 55 years old, they make the change between the lab rat and the, the new rock star, you know, uh, which is actually a really important change. And then this new generation, the, the generation that is like 45 years old, they are making all these big changes, like, you know, discovering Pais, discovering Sansol, discovering Itata. Uh, I can think of, for example, Marcelo Retamal uh, of the Martino is one of the strongest forces in Chile right now. And also uh, Francisco Vedic of Rasuris, Rodrigo Soto in Veramonte, and many, many others. And now they're in charge of this new era of Chile, you know, trying to tell a story with uh, deeper roots, like Itata, for example, like Pais. So that's a new generation. And there's one thing about this new generation that I didn't see it before. These new guys are more curious about what's going on outside Chile. In the previous generations, they were happy to taste Bordeaux or Napa. And when they, when they want to work in a harvest abroad, they will pick Napa or Bordeaux. So they're expert on Napa and Bordeaux. 
while this new generation is more like, oh, let's try to discover, you know, what's going on in Georgia. Oh, so let's go there. Yeah, let's see what's going on there. Oh, what's going on in Juga? Okay, let's go. We need to go there. We need to discover those wines. And it's the first generation, as far as I know, that are buying wines from other regions, from other countries, which was totally unthinkable 10 years ago. And I, it's the same thing in Argentina, the same thing in Argentina. When I brought a bottle of, you know, Jura, for example, to them 10 years ago, they were like, what is this? I need to know this. Now they know more, more than me about it because they, they voted to investigate what's going on around. To me, it's, that's the main change in the mentality of the winemaker, the new winemaker in Argentina and in Chile. In Argentina, of course, there is Sebastián Zucardis, Alejandro Vigil, Matías Michelini, uh, Gerardo Michelini, and several others that are changing the way Malbec is produced. But also those guys are investing a lot of money, their own money, buying bottles, traveling to other wine regions in the world, learning. I think probably they, they understood that if you like to read, you don't, you don't read just one author, you know, you, you like the idea of reading other voices, the same thing with them. So that's why I, I think that small, obvious detail now is so important. The main influence now, now it's not, not, it's not Bordeaux anymore. The other day I, I went like, uh, I have a conversation when, when I was this winemaker and we were talking about Dujac and the way, you know, he used, you know, the, the whole bunches and stuff like that. That conversation, it would be impossible uh, five years ago. But now they're totally into that. And they're learning, of course, they're learning. And there is interest, one interesting thing about uh, working with a whole cluster in Argentina, in Mendoza, in Ma especially with Malbec. Malbec is not a grape that has really strong tannins. So in the past, they used to bleed to get the structure, you know, to get the structure of the tannin structure that you need. So it was a little fake to me. And now they're using whole cluster. So they get those tannins from the skins and from the, from the green parts of the, of the wine. And the, the, the change is radically different. Just, it's amazing to see, to taste all this whole cluster. Uh, a little Beaujolais-like, <laughs> but still with that, that firm, you know, solid structure. What percentage of people are you saying are doing that with Malbec in Argentina? All these new guys, all these, all these new guys are doing that. I mean, they, first of all, with Malbec, the harvest window of Malbec is huge. So you, you can pick one day or you can pick two months later. Depends on what you want. Uh, back in the days of Roland influence and Paul Hobbs influence, which wines were really success in, in this market and um, made a strong influence in, on all the other producers in Argentina, back on those days, they will tell you, no, Malbec needs to be really ripe. And so you need to harvest really late. Why? Since Malbec doesn't have pyrazines that, for example, Cabernet Sauvignon has or Cabernet Franc has. Why is that? This guy started uh, thinking Malbec from another perspective. You know, it's, uh, harvesting earlier, they discovered that they didn't find any vegetal notes. They discovered that the new flavors, new fruit flavors, new red fruit flavors that were totally hidden with, you know, this over-extraction and over-ripeness. So a whole new world opened at that moment. And people like uh, Vigil, Alejandro Vigil in Catena, Matias Michelini, again, in, in his own project, Passionate Wines, called his project, uh, Juan Pablo Michelini in Sorsal, another nice name to keep in mind, are, are doing that. And the results are great. I mean, I, mean, I, I love Malbec because of that. 
I also made mine back in Chile. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I because you know I I produce wine because I I need to prove my theories, and when, and I started doing Malbec because I wanted to prove it, that theory of the window, you know, and the lack of paraffins. I uh, I made Malbec from Casablanca, a cool climate. It's pretty good. That's unusual for a wine writer to do that to say like, oh, you know, I'm going to make this to to prove this idea that I have actually can work. Yeah, I I did it. I did I did it several times already, but uh, it's, it's it's super expensive. It's super expensive. I mean, I don't have the money to do it anymore. All the time. You know, you need to spend time there. But you learn a lot. You learn a lot. What about Argentina in terms of the, the geography of Argentina? Well, 70% of the wines are produced in Mendoza. Mendoza and satellites, you know, San Juan, San Rafael, all that area, which is the most, by far the most important area in, in, in Argentina. There, uh, Malbec is king. You have these amazing results uh, and amazing differences between what is produced in Agrelo, which is the most traditional zone area in Mendoza, where all the really old vines are, and um, and all the big names are located. No? Uh, and that's near the river, near the river, with a lot of sandy soils and, and pebbles, and a very good um, site for, for Malbec. If you want to go for this ripe, you know, supple Malbec, that's the best place to do it. If you're wise enough and uh, don't overripe your, your grapes, you will get a, one of the most balanced Malbecs in Argentina. Beautiful ones from Agrelo. I, I love Agrelo. Luján de Cuyo, in general, is that traditional area where the best Malbec that came into this market came from. Luján de Julio is the place. And then when you go out through Luján de Julio, you go to Valle de Uco, which is the, the highest part of, the, the, of Mendoza. And there you have Altamira, for example, Waltajari, those names that start now to sound a little bit because of, because of, this, of these guys, like Vigil and Catena, like uh, Sorsal and others. And there, you, there, there is something different. There you have chalky soils. That's a desert. That's a desert. I mean, there's nothing, nothing there. All is gray, there's no vegetation, there's no trees. Mainly it's this huge presence of the mountains there, like a big monster, you know. And then this desert, you know, just coming down from the, from the Andes. Uh, and there you get some of the most exciting Malbecs are coming from that area, but from specifically chalky, sandy, gravelly soils. Some of the best Malbecs right now are produced from grapes in this particular area of Uko. It comes up a lot in your book, The Wine Guide. It's mentioned quite a bit, the Cantena early experiments up until now. Exactly, totally, 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 great. And then you have these two other regions, which is Valles Calchaquíes, which is up in the north. Crazy, totally crazy, up in the, in the, in the mountains, in a super high altitude, 2,200 meters above uh, sea level. So it's pretty high, and you, you get headaches when you get there, and um, it's, everything is rustic, everything is, is tough, you know. The, if you think uh, by the Uco landscape, it's, it's tough. It's nothing if you compare that with, with Salta, which is the main city there. Um, sandy soils, gravelly soils, where you find, uh, you can find Tanat there too, but again, mainly Malbec and this beautiful, Mal really strong Malbecs. That's changing too. There are some people who think that there's no reason to make monster kind of Malbec there. There is also the chance to do something lighter. And the first example of that are, you know, really, really interesting to taste. Well, 
But the image of Salta Malbec is strong, a monster kind of uh, red. Well, and then there's this beautiful Torrontes grape, which uh, is a cross between uh, Pais and Moscatel, I think. So native to Argentina, uh, nothing to do with Torrontes in Galicia. There's, there's no relation. And it's flowery, uh, rustic. Uh, it's like a Viognier uh, with moustache, you know. It's, a, it's really, really a, a unique grape, but in on that direction. I love Torrontes. I love Torrontes with, with chicken empanadas in, in Salta. A rustic wine in from a rough area. And then the south. The south, uh, you will divide Patagonia. Patagonia, you know. That name already takes you to a different landscape, a different, a different atmosphere. And there you have um, a, some of the greatest Pinot Noirs from South America are coming from Rio Negro, which is the oldest site. Neuquén in the north is the new part. The new money, you know, investing in, in wine, in vineyards, uh, 20 years ago. But Rio Negro has a long, long history, uh, going back to 200 years, 300 years. And there is this super old vines of Pinot Noir there. And then there is this Malbec tradition too, again, uh, some great semillons from these alluvial soils again, in a beautiful, beautiful landscape. So that would be Argentina in general. Uh, of course, there's new regions. The, the newest one, or the most interesting one for me at least, is Chapat Madal, which is in the north in Mar del Plata, right north of Buenos Aires, right next to the coast. And uh, really interesting Sauvignon Blanc, cool climate Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, and Chardonnays, and also a little bit of Pinot Noir, Trapiche, which is the gigantic Trapiche, has invested there, and um, together with a local, and they they they've been producing already for three or four years, and the results have been interesting. So it's a, that's a new region that will be, you know, uh, probably we will hear more about that in the future. Do you think that there's a lot of investment and experimentation going on from larger producers? One of the best examples that people from the establishment are doing crazy things, uh, including a Pais grape in the Marques de Casa Concha line, which is one of the most important lines in Conchitoro. So it's, it's, not, it's nothing to play around. It's just, you need to be serious. And Marcelo Papa, which is, the, he's the winemaker, he decided, why not to take a risk? Even in, a, in a, such a risky place like Marques de Casa Concha. So that kind of thing are happening a lot. For example, there is Tara, the line of Ventisquero. Ventisquero is a, is a big company. I mean, they sell, they produce a lot of bottles and they sell it by millions. But they also have this small project called Tara from the north in Huasco, in the Atacama Desert. There's nothing there, nothing, nothing, no water. And they decide to make wines there, to plant vines, uh, and they discover a little vineyard and um, they produce this natural kind of stuff. You know, if you put a Tara wine in a, any Joe Dresner tasting, nobody will notice the difference. So I'm enthusiastic about those those crazy things because it's a, to me it's a sign that things are changing for the good. What do you think the challenges are for Argentina? Like, what's the roadblock? The main challenge. The first time I I, I, I started to do the Scorchados in Argentina was like six seven years ago. But I've been I've been visiting Argentina for many many years. I my my I had some you know Argentinians are Italians. They're passionate. You know they they in Chile Chile we're more like shy. You know we we hide things. We don't want to tell you the truth in in your face. I have some of the most uh, interesting to put it somewhere uh, and um, and passionate 
discussion with, with Argentinian producers about the idea of having just one point of view. You know, uh, I totally respect the work of Roland and uh, and the work of Paul Hobbs, but uh, I wasn't agree at that time. I'm talking about five years so five years ago, no more. That that was the only way to make wine. I mean, I I love the idea of having a more extracted, you know, a, a very ripe kind of stuff. But also, I like to have a, a another another vision. So my, my main uh, fight five years ago, ten years ago, in Argentina was trying to explain that it was nothing against him or against them, um, but it was like, uh, I don't like the monopoly, and, uh, and they were making a mistake. Once they said I was a spy hired by the Chilean government to destroy the Argentinian industry. <laughs> now things are changing, I, and I, um, I think Argentina is, is flowering. Is flowering. I mean, the, there's no much better time to visit Argentina uh, anywhere, especially Mendoza. Mendoza is a beautiful place to go if you like meat, and uh, than Argentina today for a journalist and uh, for a wine geek. It's, it's, you will you will say something earlier about prejudice. Uh, you will you will destroy all this, those prejudices if you go there and you talk to these new guys who are seeing some things different. No, those uh, sweet, heavy Malbecs anymore. These are nice, light um, expression of the grape. And they're finding a market. I hope so. Yes, I hope so. What do you think? I mean, what is your? I opinion? don't know. I mean, I think uh, it's a little bit like the same situation for Australia. I always thought that the person who had it the hardest was the one that wasn't going with the dominant style all that time, because. It's so hard from here to realize the needle in the haystack of the person that's not in the dominant style that I would like. It's not that I wouldn't like that wine. It's just that I just don't know about it. And so I think that makes it harder when when it's someone going the other way. Yes. Um, I, I think the message of this new Chile, this new Argentina, I think is, has been well received by the wine community in New York. One of my goals uh, is to help to send that message through the Scorchados. And speaking of that, I mean, Brazil and Uruguay, which you also cover for the guide, are even more frontier for me. I mean, I've, I've tried probably less than five Uruguayan wines. I've had maybe one Brazilian wine. So if I were to think about those countries, what should I know? The climate in Uruguay has nothing to do with the desert of Argentina or Chile, you know. Somehow Atlantic, you know, Atlantic in a good way. It's more rainy. It's not as hot as in another part of South America. There, tonight with the thick skin, you know, can produce some really interesting wine. But you need to be really careful. And they were ashamed of that. You know, they were ashamed of their wines because they they will say, "Oh well, you know, people won't understand because there is Malbec. This this guy, you know, who is." It's so easy to understand. And our turnout is complicated, it's tough, it's rough. It's everything's about structure. There's not no no aromas there. So they started to overripe it. They started to cover it with, with new oak and they were happy with that. And we went journalists, we went like, What? What is that? This is a disguise. I mean, why you are you ashamed of showing what really is, you know? You're, you know, you're, you're like, you're not really being honest with, with the, with the, with the public, with the consumers. 
the trend that I see in Uruguay that makes me really happy is that Tanat can be strong, a baga kind of red, uh, an even Barolo kind of grape. But also, when you produce it as a light swimming pool kind of wine, it's wonderful. I mean, if you like, if you like Beaujolais, you will love those mas carbonic maceration Tanat. There is this new generation of producers that are trying to, instead of uh, putting a mask, trying to show another face of the same grape, but being honest with the grape itself, you know. And that's the thing that most attacks me now uh, about Uruguay. And also these new ventures towards the coast. That are beautiful. You need to go to Uruguay. Uruguay is it's like Argentina, small, <laughs> and with, with these beautiful beaches and, uh, and the great meat, great food, long tradition, really long Basque. Tanat is, is a Basque grape, you know, uh, brought to Uruguay by Basque people. It's interesting. It's really interesting. And then Brazil. Brazil probably, I don't know, I don't know the prejudice you have with Brazil, but Brazil is samba, is happiness, blah, blah. Well, you should go to Vale dos Viñedos. Because they're unhappy all the time. <laughs> terribly sad people. <laughs> terribly sad people. No. Vale dos Viñedos is like being in, in, in uh, Piemont. It's beautiful. The, the Italian influence there is huge, huge. The immigration in, in Vale dos Viñedos goes back to 100 years old. Uh, 200 years old ago. And um, there you have this beautiful sparkling wine. They have this idea of they need to produce the best sparkling wines possible. And some of them are great, are great. Made with French grapes like Chardonnay Pinot Noir, uh, Muscat also. Uh, they produce a, a kind of Asti that's really interesting uh, with 70 grams per sugar, but still good. It's a cool climate. The landscape is fantastic, fantastic. The it's like being in Italy, uh, but with Brazilian people, which is really a weird mix, but it, it works pretty well. Valedos Viñedos is the place to know if you want to start learning about Brazilian wines. You should start for that. Uh, there are the main wineries, and also there are this, this food and wine culture. Uh, a lot of great restaurants with local Italian food made by Brazilian people. No Caipirinhas. Where in South America is there infrastructure to visit? Because some of the areas we've spoken about are essentially deserts, and they might be great for making wine, but I don't know about a first visit. So, In that sense, uh, Argentina, Mendoza specifically, is so well prepared. So well prepared. I mean, the hotels are really, really good. The restaurants at, winery, at wineries, at many wineries as a restaurant now, uh, they're fantastic. I mean, I like meat, of course, but since I'm from Chile, from the coast, I like better have fish. There is impossible. The trouts from the Mendoza River are good, okay? But then there is there's the, the vegetables there. The tomatoes, Alevi, are out of this world in Mendoza. I mean, it will change your idea of a tomato if you try one of them. The garlic. The garlic is fantastic. So they made this incredible salad with with onions, uh, garlic, um, tomatoes, and a little bit of vinegar. And it's just heaven, heaven, heaven. Again, good restaurants, really good hotels. Mendoza is so prepared, so well prepared for receiving tourists. In Chile, also, the, the Casablanca Valley, uh, the restaurants and, in, at the wineries are really, really good. If you need hotels, you go to Valparaíso, which is a beautiful old city, a port, it's a port, 
uh, with a lot of character, you know. It really, is, it's like they say, it's like Lisbon of South America. I don't see any, any much connection, but it's still. I mean, it's, it, it talks about the character of the city. Um, and Maipo is Santiago, but there, also there is Colchagua. Colchagua is, a, is a, another traditional valley south of Santiago, like two hours drive, with beautiful hotels and stuff. So I think South America is well prepared. It's well prepared. It's far away. So I mean, if you from New York. It's like 10 hours. Flight. I was shocked by that. When they told me how long it was going to take to get to Patagonia on a, on a flight. Forget it. Was, it. it was forget like it. a long time. Forget, I could forget. be in Japan by that time. Exactly. I mean, if, if, you go to, if you go to Argentina and Patagonia, let's say, it will take you at least 16 hours to get to your hotel in Patagonia. Forget it. I mean, it's really far away, but it's worth the try. I mean, it, it's a new area. Uh, with a lot of tradition, which seems to be a contradiction, but it's not. It's like, it's like a lot of things to discover. How many languages are we talking about between those four countries? I mean, how many dialects? No, there's no dialects. I mean, we speak Spanish with different accent. Uh, of course, in Brazil, they speak Portuguese uh, and Italian. But yeah, the, the accents are really different sometimes. But if you speak Spanish, normal Spanish, regular Spanish, it will be easy for you. Um, and most of them in the wine industry, they speak English. Even in Argentina with all the Italian and Spanish immigrants? In, 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 in Argentina, less than in Chile, of course, but, uh, but, but still, you know, now they speak English to you. Now, you know, they, they've been selling wines abroad for, for the last 20, 20 years. They've been learning many things. One of them is the language. So if I want to go on a small producer tour of South America, if I want to look at some of the wines that I don't know from the export market here. Obviously, you have a wine guide that I could use as a, a great resource to do that. But what are other resources to do that? Well, in, first in Chile, there is this movement called Mobi, which uh, is a group of independent growers. Some of them really good. Some of them really good. That would be a good source to contact them first. And they have contact also with small artisanal producers in other parts that are not part of the group, but also their friends. So I will go to Moby. Of course, read the Scorchados, that's first, first on the list. <laughs> and then in Argentina, there is no such a group, but uh, in Argentina, you need to go and uh, ask for the Michelinis, the Vigils, the Zucardi, and, and people like that, which are big, but also they have their own project. When I go to Argentina to produce the Scorchados, one of the, my favorite days is the day they have with the Michelinis and all the satellites. I spend the whole day tasting projects that are sometimes are 500 bottles. So it's, it's amazing how this, this, the group has, um, you know, you know, the satellite, these people who is working with them, but also they produce their own wines and yeah. So since the late nineties, you've been making Desorchados, the wine guide, and that's a, you know, as we've spoken about, an era of a profound change in South American wine. What's going to happen, do you think, in the next 10 years going forward when you write the 2027 version of the guide? What's that going to be like? There is uh, a movement right now of big wineries getting bigger and small wineries getting smaller in a good way, in a good way. I think right now uh, there is this giants. Uh, like uh, Trapiche, uh, like um, Conchitoro again, you know, these huge wineries. And they're going to be huge and they're going to stay there. But the, the, thing, the important thing in Chile and Argentina is that there is this new idea of producing your own wine 
So it's going to be even more fun in the future to discover all these new visions. Uh, as I said, my fight in Argentina was the monopoly, one opinion, and now there are many, many opinions. And I, I believe, I want to believe that that will be the future. Patricio Tapia sees a future for having an opinion in South America for wine. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Patricio Tapia of the Desorchados Wine Guide, a writer for Wine and Spirits, as well as El Mercurio in Chile. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.